Hi everyone, my name is Kira. And I'm Bavia, and welcome to our podcast. Today, in our first episode, we're going to be talking about the gruesome history of medicine and how it has evolved since then. Medicine is ancient. In fact, the earliest recorded archaeological evidence for surgical practice is an astounding 12,000 BCE. Yeah, and um, to put a time frame like this into perspective, writing wasn't developed until 2600 BCE in Egypt. This means that early people were practicing rudimentary surgery before writing. Kira, do you know what the oldest recorded surgery is? Yes, I do actually. It was a procedure called trepanation, which is the practice of drilling holes into the skulls of patients as a means of curing illness. Now, people aren't quite sure how or why this form of brain surgery was even developed, but one theory is that it is a method for releasing evil spirits believed to possess the sick and mentally ill. They misunderstood mental health conditions as a malignant spirit trapped in the brain cavity. But we now know that some conditions are because of chemical imbalances in brain hormones. Yeah, and I've I've also read that people were doing plastic surgery um, around 500 BC, and most notably in India. Often, cutting off the nose was a common punishment for past crimes, so reformed felons would have their nose reconstructed by rhinoplasty to avoid social stigmas. At this time, surgery was also prevalent in ancient, in ancient Greece. This included makeshift surgery, such as setting of broken bones, draining of lungs for people suffering from pneumonia and amputations. Now, interestingly, the Incas, an American Indian tribe, were originally a small population in the southern highlands of Peru. And the Incas had master surgeons specialising in head injuries and cranial surgeries. And records show that they had substantially better success rates than surgeons during the American Civil War. You know, I'm quite surprised by this. Are you? Yeah, I actually am because the Incas had a very small population compared to um, the time of the American Civil War in, in, a, in America, I presume. So I would have thought that they had better surgeons and doctors, but um, looking at this, maybe not. Yeah, I agree. And um, just fast forwarding in history a little bit, continuing along our timeline. 900 AD, a pivotal era. This time period circled around the father of surgery, al-Zarawi, and his surgical text, Kitab al-Tazrib. This book consisted of every practice and procedure known, a combination of his book and local remedies with a go-to manual for almost 800 years. Additionally, most medicine and surgery was learned via apprenticeships. Much like someone may learn how to be a blacksmith, for example. And in fact, many women trained to be surgeons. However, this was only because surgeons were seen as lesser physicians. In fact, it wasn't until the 1700s, with the development of medical colleges and academic institutions, that women were then excluded from practising. Another gruesome treatment involved cannibalism. If you were suffering from persistent headaches, muscle cramps or stomach ulcers, once upon a time, your local physician may have prescribed an elixir containing human flesh, blood or bone. So-called corpse medicine was disturbingly common practice for hundreds of years. Now, you would think that these methods are ancient, but as Kira will say, a lot of these treatments are way more modern than you might think. 
Yes, 100%. The two I'm going to talk about now are from the 12th century and the 17th century, which actually aren't too long ago. Um, so in the 12th century, the Romans believed that the blood of fallen gladiators could cure epilepsy. And many apothecaries were known for keeping a stock of mummy powder, an extract made from ground up mummies looted from Egypt. Meanwhile, in the 17th century England, King Charles II was known for enjoying a drink of King's Drops, a brew made from crumbled human skull and alcohol. These cannibalistic medicines were thought to have magical properties. By consuming the remains of, deceased, of a deceased person, the patient also ingests part of their spirit, leading to increased vitality and well-being. Okay, Barbia, I'm going to test your knowledge on the subject now. A quick pop quiz, if you like. Um, can you explain to me another procedure, anything that you might have come across? Oh, okay. Gosh, bit of a surprise there. Um, let me have a think. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay. I got one. Okay. Um, the Babylonian Sculpture. Now, for ancient Babylonians, a lot of illnesses were actually thought to be um, a result of demons or like punishment by the gods for any past mistakes or crimes or misdeeds that they may have made. So doctors or healers, as they were known, often had more in common with priests and exorcists rather than modern physicians. And of course, their cures usually involved some component of magic. Uh, for example, um, a scenario is um, if a patient ground their teeth, the healer might actually suspect that the ghost of a deceased family member was trying to contact them as they slept. And um, according to ancient texts, the doctor would recommend uh, sleeping by a human skull for a week as a way of exercising the spirit to ensure this disturbing treatment worked. The tooth grinder was also instructed to kiss and lick the skull seven times each night now i on i don't know about you but i think that is absolutely disgusting and i if someone told me to do that i would just know yes no, no. imagine Sorry, if, no. a, if a doctor told you to sleep next to a skull as part of your treatment that would be <laughs> i don't know really yeah oh well kira fortunately it's your turn now Give me another procedure that was commonly used. Anything you can think well, of. Well, luckily, I am well prepared for your question. I knew it was coming. Um, so I want to talk about the use of mercury, which is actually a toxic substance. Um, it was used by ancient Persians and Greeks and also Chinese alch alchemists um, as an ointment or as something to drink, which would cure illnesses. Um, it was told that it would um, make you live forever. And this is why people would take it. So a famous case is of a Chinese emperor who actually died from taking too much of it because he wanted to live forever. So um, it's actually quite strange that it was said to make you live longer. But actually, if you had too much, it would end up killing you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think the common use of mercury now is in thermometers. Yes. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I've heard they're actually phasing that out as well, but I'm not too sure. But I'm, I'm guessing that's because it's toxic. So probably not a good use for the medicine. 
Um, so I've heard that at this point in time that we're talking about, there's no local anaesthetic. Um, is that true? Yeah, it is. Um, until the discovery of general anaesthesia in the middle of the 19th century, surgery was performed only as a last and desperate resort. So I'm definitely wondering, when was the first use of any anaesthetic? Um, I believe it was 1846 by um, a Boston dentist um, named William Morton. And he used a sulfuric ether to anaesthetise a man who needed surgery to remove a vascular tumour from his neck. But before this, um, Japanese surgeons were the first to implement true general anaesthetic in the early 1800s. And from that point, chloroform and locally administered cocaine became more commonplace globally as anaesthetic for patients in the operating room. Now, um, you might remember before I, I discussed, well, I, I said that um, many learned medicine um, via apprenticeships. Yes. Kira, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that when people were learning about medicine, they didn't really know much about the physical anatomy of humans. Um, learning by um, apprenticeships, might have been a good way to learn about it. I mean, they were watching other people um, kind of do surgeries on humans, but I'm thinking even before that, I guess maybe animals were used for surgery. And I think that would be more difficult even because the anatomy of animals is can be different, very different to human anatomy. So yeah, I think it can be difficult, but I guess it could also be good as well. What do you think, Bavia? Yeah, um, I, I agree. You know, did you know anatomy is actually the oldest scientific discipline of medicine? And, you know, the first documented scientific dissections on the human body were carried out as early as the third century BC in Alexandria. But I guess, I guess, you know, learning via, via an apprenticeship could be useful for some people because you know it's hands-on learning but of course they wouldn't have known much about anatomy at that point so I think I think the true I think I think the best way to learn would have been through um, a medical institution or um, you know a medical school and I guess that's kind of reflective um, of the present situation with Covid and everything and with so many you know uh, future doctors just learning via zoom and i can't imagine how hard that must be for them um so on a different note i'm sure you all know how important it is to wash your hands right now you would think that hand washing would be routine procedure in hospitals but thorough hand washing was actually only really introduced in 1840. simul weiss was a physician and director of a maternity ward at vienna general hospital In 1840, he noticed that a high percentage of his patients were dying from childbed fever, which occurs when a mother develops an infection during or shortly after childbirth. In fact, up to one in four women were dying after giving birth, both in Europe and in America. That would mean that out of 309,000 births per month just in the US, there would be 77,250 deaths nowadays that's that's crazy and at the same time as this an american doctor dr oliver wendell holmes jr was advocating hand washing as as a way to prevent this childbed fever but his ideas were brushed aside 
At Vienna General Hospital, it was common at the time for medical students to move from working with corpses to examining new mothers without washing their hands. Yeah, I mean, no wonder the death rate was so high. Just imagine if COVID happened then and people weren't washing their hands. Yes, I know. It, it's so true. And it surprises me so much that it took so long for them to figure out how important hand washing is. And just while we're, on, while we're on the topic of disease, let's fast forward around 14 years to the time of the cholera epidemic of 1854. John Snow had studied previous outbreaks in 1832 and 1848, and he was convinced that it was a waterborne disease. This time, though, he provided conclusive proof by mapping out the cases in Soho, central London, and finding it came down to a single contaminated well. Of course, the epidemic subsided soon after the pump's handle was removed. Following on from his research, he recommended boiling water before use. As a result, the 1875 Public Health Act was introduced to provide Britain with the most extensive public health system in the world. And this Public Health Act was one of many that would soon pave the pathway to the creation of the National Health Service. And a point for any aspiring medics listening to our podcast, knowledge about about the NHS and its history is always useful to learn about because it is a common interview topic. And so on the 5th of July 1948, the NHS was created. Before the creation of the NHS, when someone found themselves needing a doctor or to use um, medical facilities, patients were generally expected to pay for those treatments. In some cases, local authorities ran hospitals for the local ratepayers an approach originating with the poor law. The English poor laws were a system of poor relief in England and Wales meant to reduce the cost of looking after the poor. And in spite of the many benefits, there's always going to be some opposition. Many people such as Winston Churchill and Conservative MPs thought that the cost of the NHS would be too great. However, as many of you know, in terms of healthcare, the NHS has brought so many changes to Britain's health system, like free medical treatment for all British citizens, the nationalisation of hospitals under the Ministry of Health. This means many hospitals that were previously private have become publicly accessible. The NHS also introduced the creation of health centres to provide services like vaccinations, maternity care, and finally, a better distribution of doctors around the country with GPs opticians and dentists in every area. So what's your opinion about these NHS benefits? Well, I obviously think that as as you've said, there are so many benefits, but there are a few disadvantages I feel. So for example, there it is it was much more expensive than it was expected to be. So even in the first month of the NHS, the number of prescriptions increased from six point eight million to thirteen point six million. And 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 as well, because of these treatments and prescriptions, it made it make more expensive and specialist staff had to be hired. Um and I find it um strange that because of these well, because of the benefits and the great impacts it has had, it's actually created a disadvantage because it's created an aging population which me- needs more care and that just costs more money. Yeah, um, I think I think we can both say in conclusion that it was almost a complete success as it massively improved people's health 
and their life expectancy, but it also eradicated the need for medical bills, which promoted equality as everyone, regardless of wealth or social class, had the same access to healthcare. But it was much more expensive than expected, which still remains to be an issue. And I think, I don't know about you, Kira, but I think COVID has definitely had an impact on the NHS. So what is your what are your thoughts yes, on this? Yes, I do. I think it has definitely impacted the way that the NHS has had to be changed and run. Um, well, for example, I mean, working in a hospital, it's patient-centred care. I mean, you've got to be able to um, see your patients and talk to your patients and being within two metres must have been, a, well, it had been a major part of that. And it's had to adapt to being two meters away and also seeing patients online in case of GP surgeries and things like that, um, which has obviously been difficult for so many, um, so many healthcare professionals working in the NHS. And yes, yeah, so I think it's had to adapt to the situations right now. Um, what do you think, Bavia? You know what? Yeah, I, I think they've, adapted well but you know there's always going to be so many pressures on them because you know people just aren't following lockdown rules they're continuously breaking them meeting up going to parties i mean you know i think it just disappoints me a little bit that they can see you know the 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 situation right now but they still continue to do those things and that just only makes it worse for the nhs and i think i think we need we need to give them as much support as possible and help them as much as possible. And the the only way that we can do this is by staying at home. Yes, I totally. And I think, I think because of COVID, you know, doctors have had to continuously adapt to different different styles um, of seeing their patients, of teaching perhaps. So, um, and you know, clap for carers or clap for heroes, as it's now called. called. Um, I think that's a really good way of showing support for everyone that have been absolutely crucial to helping the nation in this pandemic. So um, I just want to say a quick thank you to all of um, our heroes during this pandemic from me and Kira. Yes, definitely. And I think the saying goes that um, heroes don't always wear capes. And I think that's definitely true in this case. Yeah. Um, so a pivotal part of medicine and some of the breakthroughs that have come about have been due to women. Therefore, in light of the International Women's Day coming up on the 8th of March, our next episode will be about famous women in medicine and the importance of their role. In future episodes, we'll also be interviewing medical professionals so that you guys can learn and we can learn more about their day to day lives and their jobs. Yeah, well, I guess that's it yes. from us for today. We hope you enjoyed our first episode. Please feel free to email or suggestions. See you next time. Bye, everyone.